Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and uh, once more it's one of our specials and I'm joined not only by Peter Hart but by the lovely Nikolai Everholst. And we're talking once more, well... Perhaps not so much about Austro-Hungary, but Austro-Hungary in the Eastern Front 1918, because it's all over. It's finished, isn't it, Nikolai? Uh, no, not really. Um, yeah, yes. and uh, <laughs> yeah, we yeah we ended last time uh, in 17 with uh, with the armistice uh, talks beginning at least, uh, and the armistice commission on behalf of the new Bolshevik government making contact to to. Um, to the central powers about making peace and you would think that it's all over but as we'll find out uh, since we have a, a whole hour to do, <laughs> to do more uh it, it doesn't really end just there um, and it's, not, and it's yeah. not just russia that wants it to end is it no it isn't it isn't um it really is um very much a, a two-sided thing because you you have um well, let's, let's start with 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 Russia, and then we can go into to the central powers because because you 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 have um, the the Bolsheviks taking power in Russia in October, and what they do that it, it, one of the the the, the ways they sort of convince the people to to join them is this promise of peace, bread, and land, and as you can hear, one of them is peace. Uh, this is the promise that you will end the war with the with the the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians and the Turks and the everybody, the entire world that they're they're at, at war with, um, and um, yeah, um, Leon Trotsky, uh, who is uh, the new Bolshevik Minister of Foreign Affairs and soon to be the head of the Red Army, uh, he will be the man who's behind these talks um, and 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 will will be the be the one who really takes charge in this he's not the one one at the at the talks but but he's the one running the show in the background of course as you say it isn't only the russians who want peace because the central powers are beat at this point and we've said this many times for both of them at, at this point uh but let's start with austria hungary because as you also rightly says this is not going to be as much about austria hungary because there are 
on their way out uh, of of not only the, the the Eastern Front, but on the way out of the war or history, really, uh, because they yeah, they I have guess. very little uh, yes, they have very little time left. Um, yeah, and it, it's been like that since uh, the Brusilov Offensive nineteen sixteen, where the Germans take power uh, and, and supreme command of the Eastern Front, also of the Austro-Hungarians, uh, and and starting nineteen seventeen, Austria-Hungary begins to focus more just on Italy alone. Uh, and they will need that going forward. Austria is also ending uh, a really tough period for uh, of shortages of food. Uh, there's nothing on the home front. There's no ammunition. There's no uniforms. There's no men. There's no guns. There's anything really. Uh, so, so their main focus is now going to be on knocking Italy out of of, of the war. Uh, and they were also just had a major offensive in in the uh, Caporetto offensive. You know. October, November 1917, that's where their focus is going to be. But the Germans, um, the Germans, now that's the one that they also yeah. want. They want, they want a peace in the Eastern Front. They're not that peaceful on the Western Front. Nope. Uh, yeah, as, as I think we mentioned last time as well, the Germans are, are getting more and more concerned about this prospect of the Americans coming in. Uh, and they really want to end the war in the, in, in, in the East to then transfer troops to the West and then launch some kind of war-winning offensive with all the men and material that, that is freed up there. Um, so there are, there are quite uh, high hopes that that this is going to be a change for for the central powers this victory in the east that you can end the war uh, and uh, both bring food to the home front and transfer tr- troops to other parts of the front now given that everybody seemed to want this how did the uh, armistice talks break down then yeah well yeah the the thing is that uh once the talks get going, the Russians sort of figure out very quickly that, oh, we're going to lose a lot. <laughs> they, they, they really, they're very hungry. Uh, and we're going to lose a lot of, uh, of territory if we sign these agreements. Uh, and, uh, this is going to include much of Russian farmland and industry and population. So they, they really most begins to, to realize that the, the cost of peace, uh, for them and, um, and it might be too high, uh, despite this being a, a, a number one priority for them. Um, in all, Germany wants 150,000 square kilometers of some of the most important uh, farmland and industrial centers. I mean, remember, Russia at this point, the big cities is Riga, Warsaw, uh, Minsk, Kiev, all these parts of, of, of the East. Those are the parts that, that Germany wants in these talks. Um, and then there's the, also the problem. Yeah. yeah, that's it. The complication. Yeah. Um, it's been out. I don't suppose you've heard of this place, Gary. It's a place called the Ukraine. Oh, uh, yeah. what's happening it's, in it's Ukraine? Well, part of yeah. Russia, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, be careful, Pete. Well, uh, uh, but yeah, there's. Uh, <laughs> There's, there's a move to indep- independence, isn't there? Even there's, there's, then, it's repeating itself. Yes. Like your, so, your, your tea. <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> so while all this is happening, um, these, these talks, there's also something else going on because things are happening in, in U- the Ukraine. Um, 
because remember, as soon as the Bolsheviks take power in, in, in Russia, civil war breaks out. And this is ongoing as the peace talks commence. That's one of the reasons why the, the Bolsheviks really want to finish this this talk and, and then also move on to, to fight their own war and fight all these remnants of the Tsarists or the, the whites or whatever, all these fragmentary groups that are there. And there's also movement for, for independence in Ukraine. In 1917, the Ukrainian People's Republic, which sounds very communistic uh, and all that, that's what us to there uh, today, but, but, but it isn't really the declaration of, of independence. And almost immediately, there's a, the, the fighting breaks out between Ukrainians. Uh, and Bolsheviks. Uh, but it's also important to remember this is not just uh, like Ukraine versus Russians. This is also some liberalism, f- f- conservative groupings uh, that are mixed up together going against Ukrainians that are communists or Bolsheviks. So it, it's very, very, very com- complicated. Basically, you end up with two governments. You end up with a government in Kiev and one in Kharkiv. Um, and very quickly, the Bolsheviks move and take off all these industrial things, things that we've heard of daily now, Odessa, Nikolaev, Yekaterinov, today in Dnipro, uh, and, and Kiev is captured in February as well. So this leads to this Ukrainian People's Republic asking for central power help. And that complicates things because the, the central powers are getting tired of the Bolsheviks dragging their feet because they, they don't really want to sign this, this massive amount of, of, of land over to them. So they make a separate piece, what is known as the bread piece. The bread comes because Ukraine is saying, all right, if you give support us in our independence, we'll give you food. And the central powers are in much need of this food. So they signed this agreement. Uh, on the night between the 8th and 9th of February, in which the uh, the central power promise guarantee Ukrainian independence and military protection from the Bolsheviks in exchange for grain. And that's where the, the term comes from. Speaking, and this marks a lot of Russian resentment. I'd just like to point out today's date is the 9th of February. Well, it isn't really. It is the 9th of February. It's not when you it can hear the yeah. podcast, but... <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yes, this sparks a lot of anger in the Bolshevik camp because, as, as we mentioned, this Bolshe- the Bolsheviks have already taken control of most of the Ukraine and now they've also taken the capital and now now uh, it seems like fighting is going to continue over this. Um, uh, and, and at the same time, the Germans sent their final, this is our final terms. So what are they going to do? And that's 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 where a very strange decision comes in, and that's this Trotsky's idea of this no war and no peace, which he proposes on the tenth of February, and this is the idea because they they cannot accept these terms, but they also don't want to continue the war. So what they're going to do, what he proposes that they're going to do, is that instead of 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 doing this. Uh, they should just stop fighting, but not sign any agreement. Uh, basically, that's it. It, sh- it should be said there are plenty within the Bolshevik government who wants to continue fighting. There are also some who just wants to, to give away everything and end the war. But that's what they go with. They say, okay, let's just stall it. Let's not sign anything, but let's not fight. Let's start demobilization and disengage. 
And realistically, was their army in any sort of position to fight? Not really. I mean, the the, the Red Army, there's, there's going to be a credible fighting force within a couple of years fighting and, and winning a civil war. It, it's still very fragmented. Uh, and they, they are not really in any position to do, do much. Uh, but especially not when you when you start this feet dragging. And for, for a few days, this seems to be, be working, this feet dragging and, and not doing anything. But then uh, on the 16th of February, the, the, the Germans have had enough of this uh, and they simply say, all right, we're going to end this. Finally, we're tired of waiting and we really need to, to end this war now. We are already in February of 1918. And, and remember, the, the spring offensive is coming in, in, in March. So we're not that far away from, from that. So on the 16th of February, um, they announced a resumption of hostilities against the Bolsheviks. They're going to break off these peace talks and they're just going to uh, launch a massive operation. This is what it becomes known as Operation Faustschlag, which means like Operation Fist Punch. Um, and this is not something that we hear a lot about, uh, but it is an absolutely fascinating conflict and enormous in scope it is and this is where where the 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 next war is is going to sound very familiar now <laughs> coming in because we have a three-pronged offensive into russia uh we have one attack in the north into the baltics we have one attack in the center into uh what is today belarus aiming at minsk and we have one attack in the south into the ukraine so that sounds pretty familiar to something we've <laughs> anybody has heard about in the second war. Yeah. Um, and there is, yes, as, as, as Gary pointed out, there is, uh, there's not really any, any resistance from the enemy here. They are just simply abandoning their positions. Uh, this, this, uh, announcement of no war, no peace has, has created a lot of confusion. They don't really know what to do, the soldiers, and a lot of them are just abandoning the fight without, and, and parts of the front that have been locked for years suddenly opening up. Uh, and this is what we hear in, in the, the next quote it's by the Hauptmann Fritz Wengler of the Landwehr Infantry Regiment number 48. He's, he is located in, um, if you think back a couple of episodes, uh, the, the part of, of the front where the Lake Naraj offensive was fought in uh, in the beginning of 1916. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and the front has been stagnated there since 15. There's nothing has happened there. This is Hauptmann Fritz Wengler. On February 19th, the battalions received orders to keep ready to march and to patrol the Russian positions. In the blazing sunshine and 15 degrees below zero, Shock troops crossed the main enemy lines. They found it abandoned. Trotsky had made good on his declaration, and the demobilisation that had begun would not be changed by the resumption of the state of war. At noon, a patrol of the 1st Battalion stood on the Mariktitchi Height and enjoyed the uninhibited look into every fold and every corner of the German positions, which the Russian artillery had always benefited from in the days of fighting. On February the 20th at 6am, a detachment set out. Guns and vehicles laboriously worked their way through the maze of trenches of the German and Russian positions. Around 11 o'clock, uh, 2nd Battalion of the 48th arrived in Brusi, 
and the regimental staff entered the forester's office in Gatch. Here, an envoy of the 67th Russian Division was waiting for him. He asked us not to shoot and said that their soldiers were already disarmed and would not accept a fight. It was true. Everywhere, the advance was met by unarmed Russians who happily saluted and immense masses of soldiers who had been left in the lurch. In Brussia alone, there were 100 field kitchens. The magazines there were full to the roof and a well-equipped field hospital with military doctors and nurses who looked clean and bright was also found. The whole forest between Gatch and Brussia was full of barracks and Russian camps. They were riddled with dirt and filth. About 150 soldiers still living there were collected and taken to Pronki. So what happens in these three attacks then? Uh, you don't need name the names because there's lots of names no one's heard of, but you know, give us an idea. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, let's, let's go uh, north to south because in the northern part of the attack, on the 18th of February, the 8th Army uh, is divided into two forces and they go on the offensive. Uh, one force is advancing a Riga, which is from, from Riga, where they captured in September, we heard about it last time. Another force known as the North Corps, the North Corps, uh, is uh, going from these islands, the Moonsound Islands, that were taking in Operation Albion. Uh, and they are just going into the Baltics uh, at full speed. Uh, they're, they're taking a lot of key cities. Uh, Tallinn in, in uh, Estonia, then known as, as Rebel, is taking on the 24th of February. Uh, on the 28th, the Riga group is pushing all the way up to a place called Biskov. And then the North group reaches Narva on the current border between Estonia and Russia. Um, so that, that is quite far in, in this area. In the center, um, it's an attack towards Smolensk and Minsk. The center group, um, 10th Army push on and they quickly capture uh, Smolensk within just three days. And then they reach uh, and take Minsk along with the entire headquarters of the Russian Western Front. So remember, it's Russian the, the, uh, army is divided into three fronts. And this is the headquarters of the, the, the Russian Western Front. So about a third of all the troops they have in that area is, is the headquarters for that is taken. In the southern sector, they, um, it's a combined offensive by the Germans and Austro-Hungarians, uh, supported by these troops of this uh, new Ukrainian People's Republic. They rush towards Kiev. Uh, they, uh, crushing the remains of what was once the Russian uh, southwestern front, which had caused them so much trouble during the Brusilov offensive and the Kerensky offensives in 1916 and 17. Um, then by the 2nd of March, they managed to reach and take Kiev. The, the gains here are completely up, unheard of. They, just, to, just to illustrate the rapid advance, is Minsk, was 250 kilometers from the front line when the offensive began uh, on the 18th. So that's an advance of more than 80 kilometers a day for making use of railroads sim simply to, to, to push on. This is also part of this that would become known in the, in the, in both, both here in German terminology, but also later on in the civil wars, this railroad wars where you use the railroads to just move troops along. And we have a quote here from General Max Hoffman, who we also heard from all the way back in episode one from the Battle of Tannenberg describing this Operation Faustschlag. It is the most comical war I've ever known. We put a handful of infantrymen with machine guns and one gun onto a train and rush them off to the next station. They take it, 
make prisoners of the Bolsheviks, pick up a few more troops and so on. This proceeding has, at any rate, the charm of novelty. <laughs> yeah, it's no. a different kind of war. It's a very different kind of war than, uh, than what we've seen so far. And the, the consequences is, of course, uh, panic in, in, in the Bolshevik camps. They, they, they see the Germans just advancing. I mean, in the end, they're, they're just 100 kilometers from Petrograd uh, or St. Petersburg. Um, and uh, they, they actually, uh, the Bolsheviks move the, the capital to Moscow uh, and, and make that the capital at this point because they're, they're so threatened by this. Um, uh, some, so, so, so what do they do? How do they have to tackle it? Well, there's still some people who think that they should take up the fight again uh, and go after them. And um, because they, they really, you know, but, but, but what can they do? The army is destroyed and they still have to fight the whites uh, in, in the oncoming war. So, so Lenin really steps in here. Uh, and through a lot of heated discussions in both the central committees and, 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 and all his, uh, his advisors and everything, they, they say, okay, uh, we have to agree to these terms. We, we can't do anything else. And on the 3rd of March, they signed the Brest-Litovsk Treaty withdrawing Russia from the war, at least on paper. And just to make clear, the, the whites you mentioned are the, uh, the czarists, so this, the remnants of czarism. Sometimes it could also be uh, uh, the, of the provisional government, which is not czarist, but uh, of course, whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, I just it's very to difficult to say who they are. A bunch, a right bunch. Mm, yeah. <laughs> So, so uh, what's next? So, so the Brest-Litovsk is signed. Is that? Is it all over? Should we? Uh, should we wrap up by saying thank well, you? Well, Germany must now turn its attention to the West. Surely, Western Front. Yeah. Here we come. Well, uh, what happens is that almost immediately, as as the ink is still wet on the paper, they, Germany starts getting involved in all these weird spin-off wars and conflicts in the East because the interests are still there for a lot of different things. Uh, and one of the first things that we see is uh, that while all this has been going on, conflict has been brewing in Finland uh, ever since this uh, this collapse of, of, of Tsar's rule. And in late January, as the Brest-Litovsk peace talks are, are, are taking place and breaking down and all this, war breaks out here again between whites, which is, uh, wants uh, Finnish independence, and the Reds, which wants uh Bolshevik communist rule, and the whites request assistance from Germany, uh, but the, the Germans don't really uh, want to jeopardize peace talks, and initially, initially they're a bit hesitant as what to do with this. Um, but when when the uh, Bolshevik stall, they see okay, maybe we can do something and start sending troops there. So their interest in this might seem a bit weird. But why, why do they want to do this uh, and get involved in this? Well, Ludendorff. He is, uh, of course, in, uh, jointly in charge of the German army at this point. Um, but he is still has, you know, he has made his name in the East and he still has a, an eye on the East. And what he really wants is that if he can make something happen in Finland, he can continue to have a pressure on St. Petersburg as a guarantee that the Bolsheviks won't really do anything. And then he also has this uh, sort of... A, a dream of a German-led Finnish monarchy, sort of a puppet state kind of thing uh, going on. So what they do is that on the 5th of March, the German uh, tr uh, land troops on the Åland Islands, which has actually already been captured by the, by the Swedes, strangely enough, Sweden's little weird military contribution to, to this 
this thing. Uh, nothing happens there, but then they also um, land troops on the Finnish mainland uh, shortly after and begin moving on uh, Helsinki or Helsingfors, the uh, the capital of Finland, uh, and. Uh, uh, and take up the fight here with the Bolsheviks uh, in the area. And we have a, a, an account here by Hauptmann Ernst Neumann of the 4th Jäger Battalion. At 2.15 p.m., the good start. <laughs> the, hope there's no difficult words to say in this, Gary. Like the brigade PM. Re- <laughs> the, brig- the brigade received the order to attack Helsingfors. It marched to Berghall. The forest ended and the city lay before us. Gunfire sounded in the distance. Detachments of the White Guard were engaged in combat with the Red Guards. At 4.10pm, the 3rd Company, with battalion headquarters, advanced in column of one on both sides of the road. We came to the large building of the National Museum, behind which, on the other side of a wide plain, lay the Abo barracks, from which heavy fire suddenly broke out without the enemy being visible. Covered by piles of stones, we went to to the right, into the inner city quarter, where new opponents received us in the same way. Individually, the companies pushed towards their prescribed goals in bitter street fighting. It was important for the assault party to reach the long road bridge to the red district of Sornas, which is separated from the city centre of the Tullesund. Individual shots are constantly being fired from the roof and cellar hatches. The resistance is broken and Henrik Street is reached opposite the student house. Strong fire from all sides shows that the centre of the city and the centre of resistance is approaching. The spearhead of the third company is engaged in a firefight with the Red Guards in the streets in front of the Swedish theatre. Immediately behind the Jaegers were the machine guns of the first machine gun company. The forwardmost half platoon of Oberjäger Roth was covered and supported by the other machine guns of Visifeld Wevel's platoon. Shut up, you two. In the middle of the firefight, out of nowhere, an armoured car approached the spear the spearhead from a left side street at a distance of five to ten metres. The Jaegers and the machine gunners managed at the last moment to avoid the armoured vehicle on the road. He aimed his machine gun turret at the machine gun as a Hootig's platoon, but due to the difficulty operating the machine gun in the car, Hootig's platoon suffered no casualties. Even though the machine gunners were kneeling in the middle of the street, completely without cover, machine gunner Grohman fired S ammunition. Now I'm not sure what the S is standing for. It's an uh, abbreviation. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of ammunition. It's um, just armor a heavier pe- sort, sort yeah, of ammunition. Yeah, uh, uh, slightly armor penetrating. I, I, I would hmm. imagine from context. Uh, the vision slits around the commander's seat. The planes of glass shattered. At full speed, the armoured car continued to advance along the street. Oberjäger Rothe heard the shouts from the Jaegers. Armoured car from behind! The machine gun stopped firing instantly on the command and the gunners dragged the gun off the road so as not to be run over by the armoured car approaching at high speed. Change of position! Hold fire! Otherwise, the Jaeger would be caught in the fire of their own machine guns. Order! Unload! Load! SMK belt! Continuous fire, I presume, at the armored car. And mother, yeah. No, and then uh, the uh, the story is taken up by this uh, Oberjäger Roth. It all happened in the blink of an eye. I then ordered the gunners to lower their aim to use ricochets to damage the lower sensitive parts of the armored car. That's Gary, that's lower sensitive part. 
<laughs> the car was barely 40 metres away when an armour plate was penetrated and the car suffered severe damage in several places. It turned onto a street past the fire station where the Reds abandoned it. This is where it was later found. A dangerous opponent had been knocked out. Incessantly, for hours, he had made push after push against the advance towards the city. With his speed and the skillful back and forth in the street system he was familiar with, it was difficult to catch him. He presented a constant danger to Helpman Ott's detachment, which was engaged in heavy fighting. Fortunately, the high speed and the uncertain shooting associated with it had so far prevented major losses. So, interesting street fighting, quite dramatic. Yeah, both dramatic, but also very different from what we've seen so far. These smaller engagements in in a much more modern way that we with this is not what we normally associate with the typical World War One era fighting. Um, but but yeah, they they managed to assist the the, the whites to a victory, and the civil war ends in May nineteen eighteen. Um, with uh, with a, a of course a Finnish independence from from uh, the, the from from Russia. So that's that particular side Ali dealt with. Anything else? There, yeah. there's, there's other troubles, aren't there? Yes. Um, yeah. In the uh, move, moving away from 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 this one side show, uh, we're moving to the south uh, because the war really continues there as well. Um, the the war there pretty much fails to end. Uh, Brest-Litovsk, the Bolsheviks have, have relinquished rights to to southern Russia completely, uh, and Germany and Austria is is there to assist independent Ukraine. And what they really have their eyes on at this point is uh, a few things. Um, they they want the oil fields in the Caucasus. They want uh, the uh, the naval bases in in on the Crimea, uh, and and they they want, of course, to secure all this farmland that they can then, uh, you know, use to 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 feed their population. So they start a drive to the Black Sea and capture uh, Odessa. Um, following uh, this breakthrough in the northern Ukraine, uh, they they swing south. It's, they they reach Odessa. There's the, some concern that this in, this important port is well defended by some sixty thousand Bolshevik troops. These these are not just small independent groups. These are uh, quite sizable uh, troop numbers. Remember, uh, the 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 number of troops are already being like since Brestov, they're already beginning to sh- to send troops uh, westwards, uh, and and to Italy. So, so sixty thousand troops are a lot. But as soon as uh, as they approach, they withdraw, and the city is taken on the thirteenth of May. Now, after taking Odessa, they sort of move uh, along the coast with a with repeated clash with smaller groups of of, uh, of 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 forces and they swing uh, eastwards along the coast they capture another city we heard a lot about Kherson uh, and um, there's another long drive of, of repeated clashes along this this road and this is again a very different kind of war than what we normally see uh, and I just pick one example uh, of, of, of this uh, this is the, um, the first world the Bavarian reserve Jaeger battalion <laughs> that's a long name uh, fight in the in this city of Nikolaev which is of course a very beautiful name for a city um, today known as Nikolai um, and uh, having so so this is uh, this is what happens there when they are ordered to move in to assist the fifty uh, second corps, 
which has already been there uh, and, and is trapped there. And, and this, this is, is from uh, the yeah the um, the battalion's Oberstleutnant Martin Scheuring. The train stopped in front of a second bridge over the Ingle River, which flows from the east into the Bug. It must be the River Bug uh, at Nikolaev, as you just said, Nikolai. Uh, you could hear the gunfire and see shrapnel exploding over the city, and the railroad station district seemed particularly heavily shelled. The muzzle flashes could not be seen. From the sound, we estimated that the artillery was firing from northwest of Vodopol, uh, a village just east of Nikolai. That's you. Enemy infantry was nowhere to be seen, but Cossack patrols roamed round Vodopol. An unexpected coincidence put us in contact with the endangered staff in the city. According to a Russian official, there was a telephone on the other side of the bridge. Lieutenant Lautnan, sorry, yes, Thoman, the battalion adjutant, was lucky enough to be in contact with the staff of the 52nd Corps. Being able to communicate in English with a telephone operator, he learned that the staffs of 52nd Corps and the 217th Infantry Division were trapped in the Hotel London by Bolsheviks and that the greatest haste was called for to rescue them. Wow. Yeah. Mm. So uh, the battalion is dispatched to, to uh, he, the battalion commander dispatches his companies to move into the city and to reach this Hotel London, which is located in the northern part of the city. So this is an, uh, this is Martin. Yeah, he continues. Uh, yes. led, led by Oberlautnant Lutz, first company entered the city with the battalion commander and battalion staff at the head. Near the entrance, in a narrow alley, the spearhead is met by rifle fire from the front, without the shooters being seen. Two machine guns are quickly brought into position, but unfortunately, both have loading problems. With rifles and pistols, the first defence is brought under fire from a cover behind a brick staircase. But as soon as the machine guns start firing, the enemy riflemen fall silent. Very sensible of them. Twilight is already beginning to set in. The advance is rapid. Soon the suburbs are crossed and the actual city of Nikolaev begins. Now the houses are closer together, but the streets are unusually wide. The city echoes with rifle and machine gun fire mixed with cannon shots. The companies form single-file columns. One after another, they clear the middle of the street and nestle against the houses. It's gradually getting dark. The street can no longer be overlooked. The time for insidious battles. Enemy riflemen stand at every corner of the street, firing into the darkness. The bullets hit the pavement and the walls of the houses. Machine guns hammered on the street crossings from side streets. On our side, only the spearhead opens fire. They too can only shoot at the muzzle flashes in the dark, but they continue to advance. It is strictly forbidden to pause for too long. Onwards! Onwards! It's a constant command given by the battalion commander. Yeah, and then uh, they they continue through the city, and then this strange thing happens to them, which happens a lot in these battles. But this is a good example of, of it. A ghostly figure emerges from the darkness of the night with a pale face and gaunt limbs draped in a brown Russian hospital garb in a dig humble but dignified stance. I wonder if it was one of those hospital guards with the, the, the backside showing. Do you know the ones I mean? Humble but dignified. Oh, yeah, you can be depends which way he's facing, really, doesn't it? So, through the interpreter, he explains to the battalion commander that he will take it upon himself to ensure that there will be no more firing on the enemy's side if we stop firing too. 
He says he's moved by pure human love and that the misery he saw when he was sick in the hospital drove him to this decision. He wants to go on talking about human reconciliation, but in a street fight like this, there's no room for speeches and soft feelings. His speech is cut off by the question of whether he knows the way to the Hotel London. He agrees and is taken to the front. He walks between the battalion commander and Oberlautnant Lutz, and now something quite unexpected happens. He gives a signal with a white rag. The fire stops, and at a call that sounds like an order, the shooters step out from their corners. All suspicious figures, none in uniform, all in civilian clothes with cartridge beds, belts, not beds, cartridge belts over their shoulders and with Russian rifles. They will be disarmed. Those who resist will be treated under martial law and those willing will be taken captives. We are content with our guide, advancing and saving time and blood. Was it the angel of peace who entered the battlefield? Or was it the leader of the rebels who wanted to save a lost cause? The interpreter of the battalion commander uh, uh, says that it's the latter. Yeah, there's a word missing, which I should have been able to work out for myself. But I'm not committed. Now, at this point, and to give Pete a rest after all that hard work, (laughs) we'll take a short break. 
Now, what's happening elsewhere? What's happening in the Crimea? Yeah. So, uh, so with the with the the southern coast, uh, the uh, the Black Sea coast uh, secured, the, um, the central parks can move on to the Crimea. So, so uh, yeah, already here, uh, Crimea is is, is considered uh, to be territory belonging to the to the new Ukrainian um, uh, republic, uh, and. And the objective here is really to take Crimea and seize the Russian Black Sea Fleet, which is still a massive fleet lying in Sevastopol. Uh, that is the main objective for the central powers at this point. Um, so uh, they um, they moved uh, quickly across the uh, the uh, peninsula and and really meet almost no resistance. And on the 1st of May, they managed to capture Sevastopol without any fighting. Uh, and we have another quote here by an officer of the 9th Reserve Infantry Regiment, which is just found interesting because of both the connection to other parts of the war and history as well. Sevastopol, one has a somewhat vague idea of it from school. 1853-56, Crimean War, bloody battles at Inkerman on the Malakoff, heroic defence, finally conquest because the gigantic empire without railroads could not get reinforcements there in time. The harbour entrance, the harbour in general, is said to be one of the most beautiful in Europe. The Russian ships no longer entertain the idea of moving out. The next day, those who were under steam were occupied by us. First, fast quantities of food and stolen valuables were seized, especially from the merchant ships. The keepers of these treasures, Bolsheviks with their girlfriends, were imprisoned for the time being. The entire Black Sea fleet, apart from two capital ships that had moved out and a few torpedo boats, were in the so-called warship port and torpedo boat and submarine port completely filling the harbour. On the second day of our stay, the famous Gerben arrived from Constantinople. We saw her come in. The promenade opposite was black with people, Russians and soldiers of the 3rd 9th. The regimental band played Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber Alice. The hurrahs of the sailors and soldiers sounded loudly across to us. Our hearts were filled with proud joy. Our Turkish Gerben! <laughs> it must have been. Uh, it, it must have got better because it was. Uh, we 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 badly damaged it in 1918, didn't we? Yes, we had. Anyway, my, yeah, it was uh, up and about again. Anyway, so what now? So, yeah. yeah well, with Crimea taken, why not continue? So, so they uh, continue push into the eastern part of Ukraine now. Um, so, yeah, uh, and while things are going on with the uh, German and Austro-Hungarian f- f- forces there, also Austro-Hungarian and German forces are moving eastwards into U- the Ukrainian uh, mainland. The Germans move uh, into the northeast, uh, concentrating on capturing the second capital, uh, so the uh, Kharkov, which has been the the center of power for the um, the Ukrainian Soviet Republic, uh, and uh, managed to take it on the 10th of April. The Austro-Hungarians then move uh, in the in the southeastern direction. They they take the Donetsk basin uh, and and reach the, the Sea of Azov uh, and take the the port of Mariupol uh, on the twenty eighth of April. Um, so you 
you can hear again a lot of names that we hear a lot about today as well uh and the central powers continue this push all the way to the don river with the germans taking the the port city of of, of tankarok on the first of may uh, and rostov on the don on the 8th and this is really where the the advance comes to a sort of an end uh and it's also where we see some of the last fights uh of uh, austria-hungary um on the 5th of may some ships show up outside of Mariupol and the Austro-Hungarians fire at them uh, and, and chase them off. And this is actually considered broadly to be the last Austro-Hungarian action on the Eastern Front of the war. Uh, and then from there on, they will move all their focus onto the Italian front. Uh, and uh, I mean, was it? Don't know. There might be others, but that is what the official history of of, of uh, Austria-Hungary of the war uh, says and declares. That's where the war ended in the East for the Austro-Hungarians. Um, but yeah, it, it doesn't actually end there. Uh, and it's also important to say that there are still battles being fought, and there are quite large battles being fought uh, at this uh, place, Tarkanrok, which uh, lies uh, down by the Sea of Azov. Uh, in mid-June, there's uh, several. Bolshevik attempts to launch attacks and offensives to gain territory across the Don River. One of the largest one, uh, ones is that they, they actually make a sort of almost amphibious landing uh, at Tarkanrog. They land some 12,000 troops outside the city uh, on the 10th of June, and they, they uh, march on the city, which is just held by a few German regiments, uh, a couple of Württemberg regiments. Uh, but they are just completely annihilated by machine gun fire, by rifle fire, by well-coordinated artillery fire. And by the 12th of June, the remnants retreat and they leave some eight to 9,000 killed or wounded behind. Uh, and this is one of the, the, the last major battles uh, of, of the war in the East. But it's also to show that, that the, the Bolsheviks are also trying to launch some offensives and there are actually what, what we can say is not just skirmishes being fought at this point. So, uh, so where where are we now then? So, uh, so what about any any other fronts where the so yes, <laughs> surprisingly yes. So we can continue and continue and continue. Uh, but but yes, uh, so Amazing. while this is yeah, while this is happening, uh, and while they they they're fighting in Ukraine, another uh, you know state is asking, a newly independent state is asking for German help. And this is the Democratic Republic of Georgia, which proclaimed independence in uh, in um, May 1918 uh, as a pro-German republic, which is a bit of an odd decision in May 1918, perhaps, to declare yourself a fully pro-German republic. Uh, but they do that because they want help with a uh, particular ally of the Germans, which is the Turks. Uh, and of course, the Bolsheviks with the Germans already fighting. So Germany sends an expedition uh, to the to Georgia in June. Uh, this is known as the Caucasus expedition. It's some 3,000 men uh, which are sent to help uh, repel the Bolshevik forces. Uh, and aid the, uh, the 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 Georgian army or, or the various militias and independence forces there, uh, but there are also um, there's a lot of this internal fight going on. But Germany's focus is that they want to take and seize the the oil fields around Baku. This is also something that we hear in the Second War that this is a focus point of this uh, and 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 objective. The problem here is that this is also a major objective for the Bolsheviks and for the Turkish 
um, they are all moving in on this area and trying to seize it first. Um, so, of course, we know that, that Turkey and Germany are allies, but here we have this clash uh, between the old allies because um, the, the Turks, they're supporting some Muslim groupings in the Caucasus uh, in an area that is traditionally more more Christian. They, they have, they're still fighting going on with the Armenians, uh, clashes with with with, with German uh, aspirations. And, and this is just a whole mix of things. Uh, and it, it actually leads to a couple of, of times where there is fighting between uh, Turkish and German forces here. But let's just have a, a, a quote here by uh, the guy we heard from before, Oberstleutner Martin Schoering uh, of the 1st Royal Bavarian Reserve Jäger Battalion. Kurds and Tartars, Muslim tribes, were from the south within a day's march of the gates of Tiflis. A wild panic had set in Tbilisi. Many Georgians and almost all rich Armenians had fled Tbilisi and the end of the young Georgian state was imminent when the fanatical hordes overran Tbilisi. He keeps saying Tbilisi. He's just trying he to does. make The worst thing about it was that these hordes did not appear independently. They were the pace setters of the regular Turkish troops. First, the 11th Turkish Division, which had been deployed along the Alexandropol-Tiflis Railway, and west of it in the valley of Bronskofi, Catherinefeld and Elizabethtal. Gary, I'll be having well a word with you after this. Well podcast. done. Since June 10th, acted on Tbilisi. It was an open secret. Stop saying Tbilisi in Tbilisi. <laughs> That the gangs were being led by Turkish officers, who, of course, kept in the background as much as possible, but whose presence was denied by the Turkish military attaché in Tbilisi and the Turkish Commission. According to their verbatim assurances, there were no Turkish troops on the South Georgian soil at all. Hmm. You did really well, Pete, but I think it's Tbilisi. (laughs) Yeah, um, but... As I said before, there are actually uh, there are actually skirmishes being fought between the, the Germans uh, and the uh, the Turkish forces here, which leads to some diplomatic conflict between um, Constantinople, Istanbul, and Berlin. And Berlin threatening to withdraw all military aid and troops from the Ottoman Empire, uh, leading the Turks to really relocate and redirect their forces to Persia. Uh, so this is just to mention that the first war in the East is, is more complicated and multifaceted than we sometimes think. Uh, but maybe we should return to Ukraine a bit. This is an offshoot. I just th- think it's an interesting part uh, that we really find it weird that German troops are marching through Georgia in the First World War. Marching through Georgia? <laughs> Sounds like a song. Yes, exactly. Maybe <laughs> a different Georgia, but I mean... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, oh, the Germans, the, so the Germans are helping Ukraine, or do they occupy Ukraine? Well, the thing is that they, of course, are officially there to help Ukraine in their independence. Uh, but uh, what their real focus is, is, of course, securing the flow of foodstuffs to the homeland. And um, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of harsh treatment of the population. Uh, this is aggravated by the fact that the central don't really manage to get all the food that they want. Uh, the bread piece is, uh, is ex- when, when they sign it, it's expected that they will be able to provide them with a million trainload of grain in the first year. 
Um, but because they don't have rolling stock, they have a bad yields. There's a destroyed farmlands from the fighting going across this area. It, it, it means that the, the, the actual thing that they actually get is just 11,000 cars um, so, to send westwards. So the bread piece yeah. was little more than a piece of bread. Oh, God. <laughs> you might see that. <laughs> if, you, um, if you were but, totally half-witted, I think we'd agree with <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, just to, to, to point out what this is, we have a, uh, a letter here, um, from a Danish German soldier. We've talked about this, the Dan- Danish uh, minority within the German armies. Beautiful name again, Nikolai Nissen. Uh, in the Ukraine, he's writing to his wife on the 3rd of July, 1918, uh, about what he's witnessing there, what he, what he thinks of, of the mission that he's on there. Today, Two Ukrainians will be shot again. They probably had guns in the house, may even shot as soldiers. And then there's, of course, no mercy. I must confess that I cannot find justice in it. Martial law is not right, in my opinion. The Germans will be remembered long after as liberators. If it is liberation to send people over to the beyond, if it is liberation to take their grain, which they use for fodder, etc., I resent such things. And then the divisional priest can deliver a nice sermon on the text. Those who are driven by the spirit of God are God's children. And so by God's spirit is meant the German spirit. And by God's children, the German soldiers who have come here to bring order and peace to the unhappy country. A terrible sermon. There are so many incomprehensible things here. Above all, I cannot understand that we have to come here to help the people who for hundreds of years have used their power to cow and oppress an entire people. I cannot pity the gentlemen who now have to give up some of their rights, which they have basically usurped. I don't think that the big men here, the landowners and the capitalists, care much for the Ukrainian people. If they did, they would not have summoned strangers to beat down their own people. They'd probably made sure to set the record straight instead of taking everything for themselves. There's no trace of law and justice. One of the men who is now to be shot is the father of five children, has worked for a farmer and earned two roubles a day. A pound of bread costs at least one rouble here. He had then said that he should have something more, but had been threatened. Yes, he said, then I'll run home and get my gun and shoot you. But he'd not done so. The other had identified him, and now he was sentenced to death. Is it justice? It boils in my mind at the thought of such a thing. Not any more today. I can't write for pure anger. I wish I could do something to prevent all of this. Those Danish yeah. Germans are lovely. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but you can also see signs that it's not just in the Russian army that this idea of of communism, of socialism is taking hold. It's also taking hold among some of the soldiers serving there. Um, and this is going to, of course, play a part in both what happens next uh, and in in the years to come in Germany when these, these men come home. So... So where are we now? This, yeah, we are, of course, approaching the end. Uh, as we said, there are some scattered fighting here and there going on, but the, the front is now pretty much set in the east and things are, are, are playing out uh, in the west as we know them and that we are not going to talk about. But of course, um, reaching into November, 
things start to happen. Uh, they begin to hear things, that things are not going as uh, as well on other fronts. Uh, the soldiers there start to hear thought, talk of revolution at home and all this, and we're re- reaching the end of the war, sort of. But of course, being that this is, these men are not just on the other side of the border, these are hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from home. Um, the war is nearly over and, 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 and you don't really know what's going on, which means there's a, a breakdown in, in discipline, there's a breakdown in morale, and, and these soldiers do not just have a way to just march home. Uh, and we have a couple of, I've picked, um, again, here, mainly the, the Danish Germans, because they give really good accounts uh, of, of this particular period. And we have a few here to, to, to show what it is. Uh, the first one here, we have a uh, uh, Schleswig uh, Danish soldier called Mili B. I don't know his last name. Uh, he didn't sign it in, in the account he left on. And he is writing on the situation in and around Kiev in late uh, 1918, early 1919. So already here we can see that the war is not just ending in 1918 for these men. We'd gradually reached the autumn of 1918. For a long time, we were well aware that the war was nearing its end, and everyone knew that it was the Germans who would come out of the war as the losers. The soldiers were tired of waging war. People suffered hardship, and the homesickness was great. Discipline disappeared. Detachments and units demoralized. It was a result of the daily influence of the Bolsheviks. But voices were also heard from the other side. One day we had an experience connected with the revolution in Germany. A train coming from the Black Sea city of Sebastopol ran into the station and had a short stop to fill water on the engine. It was a pretty long train. The wagons were full of German sailors. (laughs) They sang and were so happy because now they had to go home and help with the revolution. Red flags were also brought. The carriages were painted over with very telling images. I remember one of the wagons in particular. President Wilson and Kaiser Wilhelm were seen. The Emperor standing upright and receiving the well-known 14 points from the President's outstretched hand. The President was in a dress. In a dress. (laughs) Striped trousers and a top. I think he means dress coat. I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, striped trousers and a top hat. Yeah, dress coat, my context. The Bolsheviks mm. had surrounded the city. They lay there waiting for us to evaporate. Our troops were completely demoralized. They left their posts thinking they could go home. Many of them tried to reach Kiev. But when they came back, they looked completely changed. Amongst other things, I saw a bearded gentleman, one of our landsturm, who came wandering back wearing only a pair of underpants. The Russians had looted him to the skin before letting him run back. And it's funny the way that the German, the the, the Bolsheviks, the, it's all changed over, hasn't it? One minute mm-hmm. they, they're just retreating, they're not resisting, they, and when they do resist, they're slaughtered. But now it's all over. And, and they're, yeah, they're, they're just waiting. Yeah, they're just waiting for things to happen. Um, we have another uh, account here. This is another Danish soldier. He's called Hans Schmidt. Uh, and he ends the war between Kiev and Poltava, another oh, yeah. <laughs> connected to a name that we would probably heard from. Um, uh, and this uh, might be a little weirdly worded. It was uh, from the, a quote from a Danish radio program on the 50th anniversary of the anniversary of the end of the war. Uh, and he mumbles quite a bit. So I, I tried to, to translate it as well as I could. Shall I mumble then? Do you please. mean, should I? 
We received no letters and heard nothing from home for three months. We heard a few things over the army radio, and we heard that there was about to be a revolution in Germany, but we did not know when. When the last men to return to us from leave arrived around November, we asked them if Wilhelm was now a civilian. And when we were told that the emperor had abdicated, we revolted. We set up soldier councils and demoted the officers, a great pleasure for an old German soldier, especially since our first lieutenant was a drunk. I was made head of the council, and we went to the first lieutenant and told him that he was no longer in charge. We took away his three servants and two horses and told him to eat from the same pot as us. He thought that was fair enough. However, in other places, where they had better and more capable officers, it was more dramatic. There, the officers were simply chased off, but when we were marching home and the transport was attacked by Bolshevik gangs, the men quickly realised that discipline was necessary and returned to their bosses and pleaded for them to take back command. They usually agreed, but demanded complete loyalty, to which the soldiers replied, well, naturally. I like that quote, Nick. Uh, yeah, it's a good quote. Now, yeah. let's get distances in our head. No, not exactly, but it's a long way home, isn't it? I mean, yeah. this is not like, you know, walking from East Finchley to Tottenham. But no. why- I mean, a lot of these soldiers will not arrive home until January or February 19, 1919. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, the, way, the only way they can really do the, the ones who are furthest away uh, are transported out first and then moved away so that they can sort of cover their retreat and not leave. If the first ones left and just left the rest, it would be a problem. So that's what they're trying to do. But of course, it's it's good to remember that they're also caught in the middle of someone else's war. They're, these soldiers are not really, they're still sort of German soldiers, but are they? And are they in some real revolution now or whatever? Certainly they're not fighting anybody, but, but they're in the middle of, of this. And the Ukrainians hate them because of what we heard before, that they've... Uh, They've exploited their, their country. The Bolsheviks hate them because they've been fighting them for a, a long time. So it's 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 just a mess. We have another soldier here, uh, uh, another Danish soldier called uh, Søren Lawison. Uh, he's from the 4th Landstone Battalion. When the war ended, we found ourselves in, in the Ukraine. It was not amusing under these conditions to be surrounded by a hostile population. The journey home was, was not so easy either. While we'd elected a soldier's council under these conditions, then the officers nevertheless retained command. That's what the previous bloke said. The officers, mm, you know, yes. We wanted to go home at any cost. The battalion had to provide its own means of transport, and we, we had also requisitioned a train stock. But then we missed the locomotive. When we wanted to get one of these, we came into conflict with a so-called, now I don't know who these are, Petelurius, uh, 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 who are they? They are they are they they are Ukrainians. Ukrainians. Uh, yeah. They, he they're loyal to a Ukrainian independence uh, commander. Got it. So they discovered our Bolshevik tendencies because, of course, these Germans have been infiltrated mm. by communism. They simply demanded that we disarm first. <laughs> we weren't too keen <laughs> on that for some reason. The episode resulted in shooting here and there. And before we looked around, there was scattered skirmishing going on. We we lost quite a few. The Petiluria 
troops called for reinforcements. And in the afternoon, due to overwhelming superiority, we had to lay down our rifles. Now a court had to be established and the opponents demanded that every third man be shot as a countermeasure. After some negotiation, they agreed to shoot only every tenth man. The end of the story, however, was that all officers were detained, after which the battalion was allowed to steam off as we got hold of a locomotive, which in the dead of night pulled the train in the direction of Germany. The transport was terrible because of the cold and unhygienic conditions. We experienced a new episode the following afternoon. At one of the stations, we passed an oncoming train of Russian prisoners of war coming from Germany. Oh, dear. They immediately discovered what kind of people we were, and before long they were forcing us to trade clothes with them. At the same time, they robbed us of all our valuables, and what was even worse, they took all our food. Wow. Uh, yeah, well, they're just everybody hates them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, I, I just wanted to finish on one quote, and I, I think it's fascinating the context of this one, because this, this soldier, another Danish soldier, he's called Christian Johansen, he is one of the first soldiers to enter Belgium in in August 1914, and he fights at Mons, uh, and he finds himself ending the war in the Caucasus in Georgia. Um, oh, and is, I mean, the, the the journey for him is just immense. Uh, but yeah, he he then. Um, he he then takes off as as they are sailed out uh, towards Sevastopol from from the east. As so, some as I said, moving from east to west. Our mission seemed accomplished, and we sailed back to Sevastopol. Here we were met with disappointment. The railway would not transport us. After a lot of negotiations, we re-embarked and sailed to Odessa, the port city in Ukraine. Due to mines, it was a dangerous voyage. In Odessa lay a large Russian warship with a German crew. From the bridge of the ship, a private marine spoke to us and told us that there was a revolution in Germany. Now, it was us ordinary soldiers who determined the pace. Jürgen and I were then elected to the Soldiers' Council for the 4th Company. Our company commander was allowed to lead the company home. The other three company commanders were demoted. Then came the trip home, and sadly, it was almost the worst of the whole war. We still had all our equipment, field kitchen, horses, machine guns and a large box of rubles, which helped us well when we first started. The new Ukrainian government had arranged it so that each company travelled alone and one day apart. Finally, it was our turn. It was slow and we had to bribe the railway staff from station to station. We had a whole wagon full of wheat flour, which we thought we'd also make good use of at home. But when we drove into a major railway station, one morning it was surrounded by military with artillery. We negotiated for several hours, but to no avail. Since we would not be able to cope against their superior force, we had to get rid of everything we had. Then we could drive on without weapons, but with food for two days. We were given a military force with us as protection, but it soon evaporated. It got worse and worse with the transport. The railway staff demanded more and more, and we had almost nothing left. Then one evening, we reached Novokransky. At 12 o'clock, half of the train was uncoupled and the front carriages in which we were sitting drove away. After 20 minutes had passed, we heard some shots and the train stopped. Now it's over for us, said Jürgen. We looked out through a crack in the wagon and saw that a sled with armed bandits was pulling up next to us. 
carriage doors were pushed open. Hands up! And six men armed with revolvers stripped us of everything we still had left. Jorgen and I brought some tobacco from the Caucasus. I also had some rubles sewn into the clothes, but everything disappeared. They even took my good boots and foot clothes, so I was left barefoot in the cold winter. Then we were driven back and the train was coupled together. Our comrades, who had remained at the railway station, had also been looted. At last we drove on, and luckily we met an artillery transport at a railway station, which still had their weapons. Most of us joined this transport, thinking that now all was well. But when we approached Bucharest, the artillery commander told us that in Bucharest, all Mackinson's forces were interned. We had to get through. All wagons were sealed and we were ordered to keep calm. Our driver bribed the railwayman with thousands of rubles and we entered the railway station in Bucharest as a goods train. Here it was French soldiers who had the power. We saw them time and time again going over the tracks. We were anxious to see if we could get through. At once we drove and soon we were out in the countryside. We got through to Munich and from here I could send a telegram home. Wow. And now is it over? So, now it's over. I think we can uh, declare it over. But, of course, we have to remember that the, the war in the East didn't really stop here for, for everybody. It stopped for the Germans, stopped for the Austro-Hungarians. Uh, of course, there would be a number of successor wars in Austria-Hungary as well. And the war in in uh, in in Russia, the, the Russian Civil War, is going to go on for a long time and claim even more lives than the entire First World War did uh, for, 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 for Russia. Uh, so, so, yes, but I think we can declare that the, the part that is sort of what we would consider the First World War uh, in the East is over at this point. Um, and I think that um, I, I hope that it's given... It's, the, the listeners uh, both an insight into what, what this is all about because as as we said to begin with it's it's a complicated topic that we don't hear much about uh, especially some of these later episodes it's really not uh, covered nope. very well um, and, I, and I hope that that it's been inspired people to look a bit more into it and do some research themselves well we would thank you Nikolai and uh, if you do want to know more. Perhaps you could visit Nikolai's uh, Twitter uh, account, which, uh, what's the handle for that? It's at PikeGray1418. Uh, where you'll find lots of really interesting stuff. It really is fantastic. Uh, you do an awful lot of work, Nikolai, and, and you know, two, two uh, lazy people like me and Pete, um, you know, we, we've got to be really grateful for the work that you've put into these podcasts. Well, we've so learned so much. much. We've learned so much, haven't we, Gary, from this? Yeah, I mean, it. one of the things that strikes me is that things were happening simultaneously. So whilst the Somme is happening mm. on the Western Front, you know, something equally ma- uh, uh, huge in magnitude is happening on the Eastern Front. And you just don't think about it. You don't hear about it. So I've learned an awful lot, mainly yeah. not to work with Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Thanks a lot, Nikolai. You are brilliant. It's Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Cheers. 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 Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or 
visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?